Hello, my name is Justin Tarosian, and I am privileged to be sharing with you uh, this Sabbath School podcast on the lesson this week that is called Playing God. And uh, just as we launch into the study of God's Word, I want to invite you to join me for a prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much because in this dark world, you have not left us without a light, but as a light that shines in the dark place, you've given us your holy word. So Father, we pray that you'd speak to us just now as we open its pages. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired its words and its thoughts inspire us and give us understanding. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, this week's lesson covers everything from Isaiah chapter 13 all the way up to Isaiah chapter 27. Uh, And so there's really a lot to to study here, a lot to fit in. And our Sabbath school quarterly author this quarter, uh, Dr. Roy Gain, he did an excellent job on this, I felt. But um, launching right in, I'll try to keep this under, you know, 15 to 20 minutes. Um, but there's so much gold here. And so I encourage you, go study the lesson, check it out if you haven't yet, and you will definitely be blessed. Now, Isaiah 13 to 23, all of those chapters, chapters 13 to 23, contain oracles of judgment against the various nations. And interestingly enough, they start with the prophecies against the nation of Babylon. Now, fascinatingly enough, in Isaiah's time, when he penned these words, it wouldn't have been really obvious that Babylon would ever be a threat to God's people. The people who were the threat at the time, of course, were the nation of Assyria. But God, looking down the scope of time, already has dealt with the threat of Assyria in chapter 10, all of the prophecies against Assyria and how he will um, punish them for their wickedness, etc., and deliver his people Israel. But here now, the main focus is these other nations and primarily Babylon. Interestingly enough, once again, Isaiah uh, here, as he penned these words, Babylon wasn't anything huge. In fact, Tiglath-Pileser III had conquered Babylon and proclaimed himself the king of Babylon under uh, the name Pul or Pulu. And you can find reference to this in 1 Chronicles 5.26. But not only did this happen in 728 BC, but the Assyrians, uh, their various kings through time, took Babylon over and captured it in 710 BC, a second time, a third time in 702 BC, a fourth time in 689 BC, and a fifth time in 648 BC. And so by human eyesight, by human vision and perspective, no one would have guessed that Babylon would become a superpower in the region and one that would eventually destroy the Judean nation. But we know that that's exactly what happened. Now, if you've read Isaiah chapter 13, you'll know what I'm saying when I say that it is a very strong, graphic, and dark uh, chapter in a number of ways. It's a burden against or a prophecy against Babylon. And here God is basically explaining what is going to happen to Babylon. And the question definitely arises, why does a loving God allow these things to happen? Why should innocent people suffer along with those who are guilty for the the sins that they're being being punished for? And I mean, even in verse 16 of chapter 13, it says uh, this, their children will also be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravished. Verse 17, behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. And so here we have this picture of Babylon 
uh, being just destroyed and children dying and women uh, dying and all kinds of terrible things. And one must ask why, why would God allow this or yeah, to happen? And the answer is this. If you look back at the book of Daniel, God is a God of love and he didn't want Babylon to choose to push against him and to go into sin so far that it was a, another nation came and would destroy them as a result of their, their wickedness and their sin. But God had Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we see Daniel throughout his life, God is wanting to use him to help preserve the city of Babylon and lead the rulers to conversion. And actually, amazingly, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was converted in the end, we find from Daniel chapter four. But sadly, his grandson, Belshazzar, who was on uh, the throne in Daniel chapter five, went so far as to order the vessels from the temple, that is God's temple, the sacred temple in Jerusalem that had been captured, to be filled with wine and for him and his party goers, fellow party goers, to drink out of these vessels. After this, of course, there was the handwriting on the wall, literally the bloodless hand that appeared and he called Daniel in and Daniel explained that his kingdom would fall that night to the Medes and Persians. So I understand Isaiah chapter 13 as not being God saying, I'm going to cause them to dash your children upon the, the stones. No, but God is basically prophesying what is going to happen because he looks down the stream of time and through Isaiah he explains in this prophecy what is going to take place when Babylon finally rejects him to the utmost. And I guess in a, in a large sense, I mean, in my mind, what stands out to me about this is that God's wrath stems from his love. His hatred against sin is because of his love for sinners. You could say it this way, that God actually hates. He hates because he loves. His intensity of hatred towards sin is because of how intensely he loves people. For example, God hates alcohol because he loves alcoholics. He hates drugs because he loves druggies. He hates adultery because he loves marriage and he loves seeing couples happily united in marriage. God hates intensely because he loves us so intensely. He hates sin because it hurts those who choose to commit those sins. And I think this chapter is just graphically depicting uh, the results of sin. Not only will sin harm us, but it'll harm those who are innocent potentially around us if we choose to go that way. And ultimately we see on the cross that Christ in his perfect innocence suffered because of the sins, not only of a nation, but of the whole world. And I think when we look to the cross of Christ, we can understand better uh, the judgment of God, God's hatred for sin, and his love for us as broken sinners transformed and redeemed by his grace. So moving on to Monday, uh, interestingly enough, and by the way, I didn't throw this in, but I may as well say it now. When, uh, when Belshazzar had the, um, the vessels filled with alcohol, filled with wine, and they were drank by the people there in Babylon, there are allusions to this in the book of Revelation. We find in Revelation chapter 17, there is this woman and on her forehead is written Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and she's riding on this beast. Well, this is a, uh, a symbol, of course, the woman is a symbol of 
a church in Bible prophecy, and here's an apostate church that has gone against God, that has compromised and abandoned the truth of his word, and it is controlling, it is on top of and controlling a political power, a beast. And in her cup is, in her hand is a cup, a golden cup filled with wine. Wine in, uh, in the Bible symbolizes uh, false teachings here in Revelation, false and uh, intoxicating untrue beliefs about God. Just one small example, uh, eternally burning hellfire. This idea of, of a God who loves is love, but also is going to torture certain people and keep them alive to be torturing them without end for eternity. This kind of false doctrine and false idea about who God is and his character uh, actually gives us a level of intoxication and confusion. And so false doctrine is symbolized by wine. And there in Belshazzar's feast, he literally filled the vessels of God, the things that were meant for holy purposes with wine that intoxicates. And we know that the Bible says that we are temples for the Holy Spirit. Our body is to be a temple for God, not to be filled with intoxicating wine uh, like these vessels um, that were originally dedicated to God were done with in Belshazzar's feast there. Now, when Babylon fell, it was 539 BC when Cyrus the Persian captured Babylon uh, for the Medo-Persian empire. And at that time, the city of Babylon lost its independence forever. Interestingly enough, the second angel's message from Revelation 14 says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And the fact that it's, uh, it's mentioned twice, not only is it emphatic that Babylon is really fallen, um, but also Babylon, interestingly enough, fell two times in earth's history. There was the Tower of Babel, where it gets its name from, on the, the plain of Shinar there in Genesis chapter 11, and the Tower of Babel fell, of course. And then here, this nation of Babylon fell as well in 539. So historically, Babylon fell two times. Interestingly enough, the second angel's message says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Not the old nation of Babylon, but the spiritual uh, power at the end of time uh, that would be very similar to Babylon. And we'll get to that in uh, just a few moments here. Now, there's a powerful book that I can't recommend highly enough. If you like good stories and you like Bible prophecy, you've got to read this book. It's called Prophecy Speaks. You can pick it up at the Better Books and Foods or on the ABC website. Uh, maybe even, I'm sure Amazon, you can find it there as well. In this book, this guy goes around and he puts up posters around different towns that he's going to go to that say something like, inviting all doubters, skeptics, scoffers, and infidels. These meetings are for you. Come to my meetings on the Bible and Bible prophecy and feel free to stand up at any time and object to what I'm saying so long as it's on the topic that we are discussing. And this guy would pack out different halls where he would rent halls to give these presentations. And it follows the story. It's a true story as well. Um, it follows the story of a family that comes to the meetings and looks up all of the stuff that they can find to try to undermine this guy's explanation of how God uh, speaks and prophecy is fulfilled. But they end up actually giving their lives to Christ because in the end they realize the word, the Bible is the word of God. Prophecy speaks. Check it out. One of the points he brings up there is the prophecy that we find here in Isaiah that um, God, where God says that Babylon will never again be inhabited. 
never again. And it says, you know, that animals will graze there and whatnot, but it'll never again be inhabited. Well, down through history, we see that uh, Alexander the Great took over Babylon from the Persians in 331. And um, in spite of his short-lived dream that he had to make Babylon his eastern capital, the city declined over several centuries until finally, in the year 198, uh, a Roman leader, Septimus Severus, found Babylon completely deserted. So the city had come to an end through abandonment. And today, villagers live on parts of the ancient site, uh, but they've not rebuilt the city at all. Interestingly enough, Saddam Hussein, in the, uh, the 90s, he considered himself a reincarnation of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You can find, and when the American soldiers went in and, and kind of put an end to his rule, uh, they found in his buildings, his temples and whatnot, his uh, areas, his palaces rather, that there were paintings of him and Nebuchadnezzar riding side by side on a chariot. He believed himself to be the modern reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. He had coins minted where his face was on one side and Nebuchadnezzar's was on another. His dream was to rebuild Babylon and make it his capital there in modern day Iraq. But as we know, that didn't take place. And to this day, God's prophecy still stands. Babylon will never again be rebuilt or inhabited. When God says something, it will take place. His word is sure and it is powerful. All right, moving on to Tuesday, fall of the mountain king. <laughs> it's, I think it's a play on the classical piece in the hall of the mountain king. But um, the fall of the mountain king, Isaiah chapter 14. Here's where we're getting to the really powerful and interesting stuff. Now, in this chapter, verses 1 to 11, uh, it's a poetic exposition where God is saying to the king of Babylon, you're going to die just like every other king that has gone before you. And so symbolically, uh, the dead kings are greeting their new colleague to the realm of death where maggots and worms are his bedding. In verse 11, it explains that. Pretty disgusting, but it's a dramatic way of God telling the arrogant king that he's going to be brought low and end up dying just like the monarchs before him. What happens after verse 11 in chapter 14 of Isaiah is the most interesting uh, to me, and I'm sure to you, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, there was, here it says in verse 12, as the focus seems to shift from the earthly king of Babylon up to the celestial powers behind the king of Babylon. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And yet God says to this being named Lucifer who spoke these things in his heart, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol or the grave to the lowest depths of the pits. Now, some have tried to suggest that this is the earthly king of Babylon being spoken to here, but it's obvious that it's not. I mean, here comes Lucifer. It's described, uh, he's described as being in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of God, uh, the anointed cherub who covers. He's on God's holy mountain. He's perfect from the days he was created until sin was found in him. And then eventually, you know, he has been cast out by God and it says he'll eventually be destroyed by fire. This obviously 
couldn't be applied to any human being because, yeah, it just wouldn't make any sense. We know from Revelation 12 verses 9 and 10, though, that Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was cast out of heaven and his angels with him. Similarly, the uh, passage, Ezekiel chapter 28, is I think even more clear in drawing a contrast or, you know, explaining that this is a, uh, this is a whole, this is a um, supernatural being. Ezekiel chapter 28 says, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God. And then it goes on for 10 verses. But then in verse 12, it says, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. And it goes on. Now, this is, is very telling. The words here in Hebrew that are used are different. The first one that's translated Prince of Tyre is talking about the earthly monarch, the King of Tyre. Whereas the second one, uh, when it says the King of Tyre, it's talking about the supernatural demonic forces behind the literal King of Tyre. Daniel chapter 10 explains to us very clearly uh, that uh, there are, there are supernatural forces over the realms and other verses in the New Testament as well. Daniel 10 talks about the prince of Persia. And this obviously wasn't a human prince of Persia because it was some supernatural being that was resisting uh, the angel Gabriel. And Jesus had to come as Michael there and, uh, you know, conquer so that Daniel's prayer could be answered. And so we know that there are supernatural forces in demons working behind the scenes, behind um, evil human rulers. And so we see clearly that this is uh, who it is talking about. All right. Now, here are two drastically different principles. Isaiah 14 talks about Lucifer saying, I will ascend above the, the clouds of God and I will ascend above, like plant my throne above the stars of God and I, 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 and he's trying to go higher and higher and higher. But here we have an opposite picture of Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 5. Though he was God incarnate, though he was God, fully God in heaven, he became incarnate as a human being and came lower and lower and lower. He did not consider his, his divine nature something to be grasped or held onto, clung to, but he surrendered many aspects of his divinity in order to become human so that he could be our savior. So the spirit of Satan is one that that lifts us up higher and higher and higher where we build ourselves up. But the spirit of Christ that we are called to have, the minds of Christ that we are called to have in us as well and embrace in our lives is one of a servant coming lower and lower and lower to serve those around us in every way that we can. Very interestingly connected to this idea of coming down, Christ's humility in descending and Lucifer's arrogance in trying to ascend and be like God. Interestingly enough, the name of Babylon itself is, uh, is very telling. It comes from the Bab-Ili, the words in the Babylonian language, Bab and Ili, which means gate of gods. So the gate of gods, and it's referring to a place where there was access to the divine realm. We know in the Bible though, that it says in Genesis 28, that Jacob awoke from a dream where he saw a ladder connecting heaven and earth. And he said, Genesis 28, verse 17, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So it was called Bethel or Bethel. And so 
Jacob named the place house of God and said, this is the gate of heaven. So here we have in the Old Testament, we have the gate of heaven at Bethel and we have the gate of the gods at Babylon. And these were opposite ways to reach the divine realm. Jacob's ladder oriented in heaven, you know, it started in heaven and was revealed uh, from above by God. But Babylon had its towers and its ziggurats and its temples and even the Tower of Babel way back in Genesis 11, built by human beings from the ground up. And so these are opposite, opposite forces and it communicates to us clearly the, the difference in ways of salvation. Babylonian and any false teaching, anything that is not from God will teach that we are saved in some way or another uh, by our own super, I mean, not superhuman saying, by our own human strength, doing something, working our way to, up to salvation. But the Bible teaches very clearly that we're saved by grace through faith, not human works, but by grace through faith. And this is the, the difference that we see even pictured uh, here in these passages. Now the question comes, what is Babylon at the end of time? What, uh, what does it refer to? Well, 1 Peter 5 verse 13, Peter in this letter, he says, greet all who are in Rome. Sorry, he actually says, she who is in Babylon, that is the church who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. So Peter was saying, uh, the church who is in Babylon greets you. And where was Peter at that moment? He was in Rome. And so Rome is referred to in the Bible as Babylon, not only in Bible prophecy, but here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And then in Revelation, it's, it's uh, spoken of as an evil power uh, that is working to destroy God's people and spread the wine of false doctrine and confusion. But just as Babylon, local literal Babylon in the Old Testament, was, was destroyed uh, because they had rejected God and pushed against him. So at the end of time, spiritual Babylon will ultimately be destroyed. Will there be people that come out of Babylon? Absolutely. Revelation 18 says, come out of her, my people. And we see in Old Testament Babylon that there were people in Babylon that were God's people. Even Nebuchadnezzar finally gave his life over uh, to the Lord of, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So we can praise God for that, but we can be assured as well that the false doctrines, the confusion of all these false religions, God will not let them go on forever, but they will ultimately be destroyed and nothing will be uh, in the new earth except truth and morality and purity and the righteousness of Christ. Just as we draw this to a close, you know, the, the chapter there in Isaiah there in Isaiah chapter 13, we know that um, when you read the chapter, it's obvious that it's not just speaking about Babylon and Old Testament Babylon, because it says in verse 11, and God speaks saying, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And you have some, some verses here, like verse 10, it says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Then in chapter 24, uh, God begins speaking very similarly once again. It says in chapter 24, verse 23, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now this is talking about the, 
basically the destruction of the wicked and the annihilation of the earth during what we call from Revelation chapter uh, chapter 20, the millennium or the thousand years. So the Bible tells us that for a thousand years, the earth will have no normal inhabitation. I don't even know if that's a word, inhabitation. It will have no normal habitation. There will be no inhabitants alive on planet earth except for the devil and his angels. And so every human being will be dead. And it talks about this and refers to this in Isaiah 24 here and in other places as well, where it's just complete destruction and desolation on the earth. But the good news is that the earth is desolated. The the devil can't harass, tempt, or uh, destroy or deceive anyone for a thousand years. And after the thousand years takes place, the Bible says that when the wicked are raised back to life, every wicked person who has ever lived and every person who's ever lived that's accepted Christ is already in the new Jerusalem that's descended down to planet earth. The Bible says that after every single person confesses with their tongue and kneels and realizes and sees and confesses and says, God, you truly are just. You've done everything that you possibly could to try to save me. Lord, I recognize that what I'm about to experience is because of my own choices, my own stubbornness of heart. The Bible says that God will perform his strange act. Fire will fall down from God out of heaven and devour them. The devil and his angels and death itself will be destroyed. And then will be fulfilled what it says in Isaiah 24 verse 23, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. This will be the new Jerusalem. Little did Isaiah know when he was writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this would be in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, where we will live with God forever and ever and ever, world without end. Friends, no matter the suffering, no matter the pain, no matter the desolation that we may experience in life now, in the end, God and his goodness, his purity, his righteousness, his love will triumph over evil once and for all. This is something that every believer's heart has longed for. And when Jesus comes, though it will be some time before the the wicked are destroyed, um, another thousand years that is, The Bible tells us that all of the righteous will be raised from dead, from the dead, will look up to Jesus and say, Isaiah 25 verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, you want to be a part of that group? I know that I do. And God didn't save you just for you. God saved you to save others. So may it be our prayer that he use us to bring as many people as possible to be ready on that day when he comes to look up and to say those words with victory and with smiles on our faces. Would you bow your head with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promises that you've given to us in your word. And we thank you that you will one day soon put an end to evil and pain and suffering and false ideas and confusion and darkness. 
and we will live in your light throughout all of eternity. Lord, we pray you keep us faithful. Make us more like Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you'd use us to introduce as many people to him as possible so that we can increase the population of heaven one person at a time and spend an eternity with them and with you. We love you and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.